take this opportunity to introduce our guest speaker today, who's one of our very own. He's been a member of Abiding Harvest since 2010. He was a home team leader for three years. He hosted our Live Tree Cafe ministry while it was going on. He's taught the new member class in First and Second Thessalonians and is currently teaching Ephesians every Sunday morning at 9. So if you don't have a class at 9, come join Jeff in the 9. He is the co-champion of the Abiding Harvest Theater Ministry. He is an English language educator with over 50, uh, 25 years experience in the U.S. and many other countries. He served at ORU for six years. He worked for the State Department in Romania. And he currently teaches at University Language Institute at Cityplex Towers. And he's also a candidate to become a licensed local pastor in the United Methodist Church. So please welcome our very own Jeff Letterman. I'd like to use the, the mic, the handheld. This, this one, I think, will pull my pants down. We don't want, we don't, I didn't wear a belt today. I'm afraid it'll distract you from the message a little bit. So the title of today's message is um, Taste and See That the Lord is Good. You know, we live in a world today where people don't honor God at all. In fact, he's viewed as the big cosmic killjoy, the judger. Um, He's going to expect things of you that are unfair. And in truth, he's so, so, so very good. And I would like to talk about that today. So if we look at the next slide, I don't know if you guys remember, but a few uh, years ago, back in 2013, during the Easter season, we had a, a living last supper. And it was where several members of the church took the role of apostles, the disciples, and uh, Jesus, of course, the big man of the hour. Now, 2013, although I was a member of the church, I was really struggling in my life. Um, my life was nothing um, that I could be proud of in any way. Um, I shared last year with you when I spoke almost exactly a year ago because it was the, it was the same weekend that the youth came back from camp So it's a great intro, I'll tell you. I mean, we're all, the Holy Spirit just falls. I mean, you guys are so full of God's grace and joy. It's just wonderful. Um, So, but I wasn't doing well in 2013. I shared with you last year that I was struggling uh, with alcoholism. And if you met me on a Sunday morning in 2013, I was hungover. And I didn't know really what my way out was going to be. But Terry called me, and she said, Jeff, we're doing this Living Last Supper, and we need somebody to be in it, and we'd like you to be John. Now, alcoholics like to find a reason to say no first, because we never know what we're going to be like or whether we're going to be able to do it. But for some reason, anytime ever, anybody ever asked me to say anything in this church, I just said yes. Not in me, it just came out. It's like, wait, what did I say? No, uh, and it was too late. I was already committed. But there was something that happened in actually taking on the role of John. John, the beloved disciple. I remember rehearsing my lines at home where he said, Jesus is my best friend. I'm sitting right next to him. I'm sitting at this table. I've seen his glory. And although I felt very far away from Jesus, something spoke to my heart. 
that I could really be his best friend because he was already my best friend. I just didn't realize it. So I decided to do a study on the book of John, the gospel of John. And uh, I just love that book. You know, it's written by someone that knew and loved him. And from the very beginning where John says, a light has come into the world. All the way through to the end where he says, if everything he did were written, the world could not contain the books. This is a love story to Jesus. His humanity, his love, his grace, it's, it's overwhelming. And so as I was studying that, one of the things that I came across was, of course, his miracles. Now, the interesting thing about John's gospel, which is different from the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that the synoptic gospels, the word for miracle is dunamis. And it means power, dynamite. It's God flexing his muscles. And when Jesus performed a miracle, for example, the woman that was crippled for 18 years, and she comes to him in faith, and he says, do you want to be healed? And it's like, boom, he's showing God's power. He's showing who he is by his power. You know, Jesus said, don't just listen to my words. You stand condemned because you reject the miracles that you've seen in front of you. I've demonstrated who I am. You may want to reject the words, but you cannot reject what you see in your midst. When the Pharisees came after him, he said, which miracle do you condemn me for? There was no argument. God was showing his power. But the difference is with John. John doesn't refer to them as dunamis. John refers to his miracles as signs. Simeon, I think is the word. Simeon, signs. Yes, there was power that God was showing, but there was something deeper. There was something beneath the surface. God was telling us something about his character, something about himself through the miracles that he performed. He said, I'm the light of the world. And then he heals a man that's blind and gives him sight. He says, I'm the bread of life. And then he feeds the 5,000. And that tangible message comes inside of them and they're filled. So today, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about Jesus' very, very first miracle. His very first miraculous sign. And that is the wedding at Cana, where he changes the water into wine. And so I'd like to just take a moment and look at a video clip, and then we're going to unpack that. In the town of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine had given out, Jesus' mother said to him, They are out of wine. Madam. What do you have to do with this? My time has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you. 
The Jews have rules about ritual washing, and for this purpose six stone water jars were there, each one large enough to hold between 20 and 30 gallons. Fill these jars with water. They filled them to the brim. Now draw some water out and take it to the man in charge of the feast. who had drawn out the water anew. So he called the bridegroom. Everyone else serves the best wine first. And after the guests have drunk a lot, he served the ordinary wine. But you have kept the best wine until now. Jesus performed this first miracle in Cana in Galilee. There he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, Jesus and his mother, brothers and disciples, went to Capernaum and stayed there a few days. So this is a familiar miracle. Probably as kids in Sunday school, we memorized Yes, that was his first miracle, and um, there's so much to this, and I'd like to unpack it a little bit. So there are several things I want to talk about first. First is the exchange between Jesus and Mary. Now, the first question is, why is Mary getting involved in this? What's, what's this to her in particular? Well, one thing that we know is that Cana was a town about five miles outside of Nazareth, so it's kind of like the wedding at Bixby. Just be down the road. And it's very likely that Mary was a friend of the family. That she was invited along with Jesus because she knew these people. And it's also very likely that not only was she a friend, but she was probably involved in hosting the wedding to some degree. There's a couple reasons we know this. First of all, she knew that the wine was running out. She knew they were out. Now that wasn't something that people knew. The servants knew, perhaps uh, people overseeing the wedding knew, but Mary was privy to information that other guests weren't. So she was probably um, involved in the wedding beyond being merely a guest. One thing that we have to remember is that weddings today are just another party. They're a big deal. We see in our culture today that weddings are being defined in all kinds of ways, and some people have many, many weddings, And they're not the significance that they used to be. But at this time, a wedding was something that was a rare occasion. It was one of the rare occasions to celebrate, to bring joy into the community. 
as we celebrate a family coming together. And how you hosted a wedding was of great importance. There was actually a law called the law of reciprocity, which means that if you went to a wedding and you were hosted with wine and drink and food, that you actually had to host in a like manner. So if you sat and you ate and you drank, but then when it was your wedding, you didn't provide the same amount or the same quality, you could actually be sued in court for not living up to your responsibility. But not only that, you were shamed in the community. People remembered your wedding because it was one of the highlights of the year. Everybody knew about the wedding. It was the one time to get together. And the one thing they'll remember is you didn't provide. There were actually proverbs, Jewish proverbs at the time, that a a wedding without wine was joyless and that the marriage would be joyless. And so this couple has a lot at stake. The wine is running out and their reputation is on the line. So Mary, as someone who is involved in the wedding most likely, who is talking to the servants, she turns to Jesus. Now this brings us to another reason why Mary is getting involved. It's more than just this wedding. Mary has been waiting 30 years. The angel came to her 30 years ago and said, you're going to bear the Messiah. And she held those things quietly in her heart. And now she's starting to get impatient. She's like, I saw you got baptized. I wasn't invited, but I saw you get baptized. And I see these dudes hanging around you. I think maybe they're disciples. Maybe it's time to do something. I'm ready to see your glory revealed. And you know what? I don't talk about this much, but some people have whispered about my reputation for the last 30 years. And I would like some vindication. I want you to show them who you really are. It reminds me, I remember when I was a kid, I watched one of my favorite movies was Superman 2. And during Superman 2, Superman fell in love with Lois and told him, her, that she loved, he loved her. Getting my adjectives all mixed up. Uh, sorry, pronouns. I'm an English teacher. Pronouns. Just testing my... I have some students here, by the way. So, anyway, though these are pronouns. Uh, anyway, so Clark Kent, Superman, reveals that he's Superman to Lois Lane. But as a result, he has to give up his powers. And then he gets his rear end kicked by these three nasty criminals from his planet. He's humiliated. But then he gets his power back. And he's confronting these bad people. And I'm sitting in the audience watching. And I know that the criminals, the bad people, think he's powerless. They think he's, they're, they're going to they're gonna beat him up again. And I'm just like, Superman, just show him what you can do. Just, just show him your power. Just show him you got it back. And that's how Mary feels. She knows who Jesus is, and she wants him to reveal himself because she knows he's the Savior. She knows who he is. Now, that's Mary's response. That's her. That's why she's getting involved. But what, what about Jesus' response to her? Is this a rebuff to her? How do we look at his, this exchange? There are different interpretations. Some say, woman, what have I to do with you? Some say, dear woman. Some say, madam. Um, But basically, he doesn't call her mother. 
And he doesn't say, okay, mom, I'll do it, whatever you say. Jesus is establishing their relationship. If he is going to be the Messiah, her Savior, she can't save herself. He is going to die on the cross for her, just like the rest of humanity. And so he has to put things in perspective. Now, what's interesting, and I think the video shows it well, is he kind of smiles, kind of smiles at her a little bit. Um, And he says, you know, woman, what have I to do with you? He's listening to her, but he has to make sure that she knows, look, I have to be obedient to my father in his timing. So she picks up on that. And she turns to the servants. Now, he doesn't say he's going to do anything, but she can see. She knows her son. She knows that smile. And so she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he says. I'd like to go ahead and skip the next one. I have some verses about Mary and mother, but we'll skip that. So let's just look at the miracle itself. Let's review it. So Mary gets the hint from the smile. She turns to the servants she says, do whatever he tells you. So what happens? We've got six stone jars. Now, these are jars for ceremonial washing. We'll talk a little bit about that later. That's very significant. And Jesus has the servants fill them with water. Now, this is one thing I love about God. I love about Jesus is that he partners with us in his work. Jesus could have just done a big zap and all the wine glasses filled. He could have done it all himself. But he asked the servants to fill the jars. He asked the servants to serve the life-giving, what's really life, but the wine. So he wants us to be part of it, which I think is beautiful. And then, of course, they serve it to the master of ceremonies, and he says, wow, you've saved the best for last. So let's unpack this just a little bit. Let's talk about the sign. What does this miracle say about Jesus What does it say about his mission and his heart? The first thing we want to look at is transformation. We become new. Jesus came to change our hearts and our minds. He came to make all things new. Now, we have six stone jars here. In a lot of ways, that represents a cold, dead, stony heart. These were used for ritual purifications, very much representing the law. You know, the Pharisees had all kinds of rules about how you're to wash yourself. They had to actually wash themselves where the water would drip off because if it came down the other way, you'd have to do it again because you weren't following the rules correctly. The law brings death. The law will never save us. The law is always based on man's performance. And we will never be worthy of ourselves to be able to get God's blessing. When Moses put his staff in the water, it turned to blood. The law brings death. But what does Jesus do? He fills those jars with wine. He transforms it into joy and life. So let's talk a little bit about transformation from the scriptures. In Ezekiel, it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. In 2 Corinthians, it says, 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Isaiah says, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? In Mark, it talks about no one pours new wine into old wineskins. I love the, one, the way this dovetails here because in order for us to be filled with his spirit, filled with his joy, prepared for what he does for us, he has to make us new. This is not a makeover, okay? This isn't a new haircut. This isn't losing a few pounds. It's not new carpet in the house. Anyone that renovates themselves on the outside is still going to be dead on the inside. We're still going to have the same unregenerated mind, the same proclivity to sin, the same failings. But what Jesus does is he transforms us from the inside, and it works its way out. We don't come to Jesus cleaned up and worthy. We come to him empty-handed. He changes our heart first, then it works itself out. And I think this is beautifully uh, expressed in 1 Corinthians, where it talks about all the sins that separate us from God. It says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But that is what some of you were past tense. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That inner transformation changes the outer behavior. It works from inside out. Now what I think is a beautiful picture in nature, of course, is the butterfly. One of the things I love about this church is we've got the harvest garden and we've got a whole uh, ministry about butterflies. And if you don't know anything about butterflies, they're amazing. I, there is no way they evolved. They act in ways that only God's touch could have them act. They're worms, right? They're just crawling around on the ground. They go into a little cocoon and die. But not only do they die, they kind of dissolve. They become a mush of just ooze, basically. And God knits it all back together to give them a new brain and a new heart, just like he does for us. But what's also awesome is that when God transforms us, he gives us a job to do. That butterfly, when he emerges from his cocoon, what's his job? Spread life. He goes through the valleys, he goes through the forests, he goes through the deserts, spreading life from flower to flower, from tree to tree. Again, just as we carry the message of God, as we're transformed to share life with the world. That's our job. Now, the second sign is joy. As I said earlier, the Jewish people had a lot of proverbs about wine. And wine is a symbol of joy. It often would say that without wine there is no joy. A wedding without wine has no joy. Jesus filling those containers with with wine was his message that he came to bring joy to us. 
Now, joy is a beautiful thing. And we have some scriptures that refer to joy. In Romans, it says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Are you joyful? You know, it's difficult in this life to feel God's joy filling us. We have financial troubles. We have personal failings. We may be persecuted. We may be lied about. We may be struggling. And yet, where is God's joy? How do we rise up and be filled with that wonderful, beautiful joy that God brings us? You know, not too many weeks ago, um, one of my commitments once a month is to go to a detox, an alcohol treatment center, and share with the people there a little bit about what God's done in my life. But I will tell you, the whole week leading up to that, I was under attack. I felt like I'm just a fraud. The enemy whispers in our ears and tells us, you are the biggest phony. You're going to fail. Who do you think you are telling anybody about God? I know what you did. I know where you've been. I know who you are. And he harasses us. But I remember going there, and as I was sharing the goodness of God, it was overwhelming. When we speak the goodness of God, it fills us with joy. I have to say that in the last few years, as God has worked in my life, I've become the biggest mush there is. I cry on a dime. I was crying the whole time during praise and worship. I mean, every, every song I'm like, oh man, it's gonna, I'm going to short out the mic. <laughs> because I'm so full of God's love and His goodness. And as I sat there sharing with people that were in despair, some of them not really even very lucid, you know, some of them barely there, I could feel the enemy's voice shut. God, God's joy, his love, his goodness, when it comes out of our mouth, when it comes from our lips, will shut the mouth of the enemy. And not only that, I bet you he flees. It says, how do we overcome? It says, we overcome by the power, by, by the blood of the Lamb and the power of our testimony. And what is our testimony? It's God's goodness. If I am walking with downtrodden, if I'm walking in self-condemnation, if I wake up in the morning dreading that day, there's one answer. Speak of His goodness. Sing of His love. Tell somebody what he's done for you. All of you have a story. All of you have been rescued. All of you have been redeemed. All of you have a home in heaven. There's nothing on this earth that can rob you of that. There's nothing in this earth, there's nothing Satan can say to me about my past that can rob me of my joy if I just speak it. And I found my little talk, I was getting emotional, and I was getting choky, and I was getting the tears, and, you know, it's kind of embarrassing. And I just kind of had to say, and that's all I have to say. <laughs> you know, kind of doing kind of a little bit of that. And one of the women I was there with spoke to me afterwards, and she said, you know, sometimes we're so grateful 
we just can't see. Sometimes that joy is going to well up. That joy is going to manifest because it is so rich, it is so pure, it is so beautiful. What he's done for us. He came to that wedding to show his purpose, his reason for coming. It was not to condemn. It was not to judge. It was not to spank people and tell them they're bad. It was not to smite people. It was to transform them. Make them new. And give them joy. It's a beautiful thing. The next part of the sign has to do with our shame. Jesus came to show who he was, to cover our shame. Now, as we talked about earlier, this couple, their reputation was on the line. The wine was gone. The whispers could start. They could be dragged into court. And throughout their marriage, people were going to say, look at that couple. What a rotten wedding. They didn't provide for us. They didn't care for us. They weren't prepared. It was a big deal back then. Jesus covered their shame. The interesting thing is this is one of the miracles that Jesus did not do publicly for everybody to see. Nobody knew where that wine came from except the servants. The bride, the bridegroom, the master of ceremonies, and all the guests didn't have a clue that the wine had run out. They didn't have a clue that the husband and wife were found wanting Jesus, in his mercy, covered it up on a secret mission. And this has always been God's heart. In the garden, right after Adam and Eve fell, right after history changed for all of us, God's first act was to cover their shame. They were hiding. Where are you? Come out. We were afraid because we were naked and we were ashamed. Come here. Let me slay some animals and cover you. Blood caused the covering. It's a picture of Christ's sacrifice for us. He covers our shame. Now let's think about that a little bit. You know, we have many opportunities to feel shame, to be exposed for our weakness. If you look in the Bible, one of the most beautiful stories is when the woman came into the Pharisee's house, the sinful woman. And she comes in and she falls at Jesus' feet. And she weeps. And she bathes his feet in her tears. She wipes his feet with her hair. She kisses his feet. What does that Pharisee say? Do you know who this woman is? Do you know what she's done? Now why did he do that? He wants to shame her. He wants to tell her she's unworthy to approach Jesus. Keep her away. Keep her out. You know, there's a lot of people out there in the world that think that they can't come to Jesus' feet because they're not good enough, because they did something wrong, because they're unworthy. Well, I can tell you that's not what Jesus thinks at all. That woman didn't have to defend herself. Jesus defended her. So when I came in here, you did not wash my feet, but she's bathed them in her tears. When I came in here, you didn't kiss me on the cheek, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. She's worthy to be here because I love her. I'm going to cover that shame. I'm going to defend her reputation because I see her for that precious, precious child that she is. We do not have to walk in shame. 
We were singing that song where death was arrested. There's so much in that. I want to sing it again. But it says, our shame was a ransom that you paid. And not only did he pay our ransom, he became shame for us. We see a lot of paintings of Jesus with his little whatever he's wearing. He was naked on that cross. Totally exposed. He was spit on. He was mocked. He was naked. Why? For us. So we don't have to be ashamed. We can walk into the throne and we can stand before the Lord. We can be in his presence forever, white as snow, because of what he did for us. I always thought that miracle at Canaan was kind of, you know, was he working up to Lazarus, you know, made a little wine. But it was definitive. He told us his mission. I'm here to change you. I'm here to give you joy. And I am here to cover your shame. That's great news. I want part of that. If you are not walking in joy right now, if you're feeling condemned or tired or weary, I want to tell you, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you're struggling with sin or habits or accusations from the past, I want to remind you that he's transformed you. And it may not have worked all the way out yet, but Jesus is relentless. He's going to change us inside and out to make us into his image. The word says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When we understand here what Jesus has done, when we get it here, then our hands and our feet get it. And then we get to go out on our mission. Just like the butterfly, we got pollinating to do. We've got people to reach. We want to invite those people to lay at Jesus' feet. I don't know if all of you have been truly transformed yet. I don't know where everyone's heart is, whether or not you've asked Jesus to transform you, whether you've put your sin and said, Jesus, forgive my sin. I believe that you did it on the cross for me. I want to welcome anybody that needs joy or a reminder of their transformation, or a new life in Christ, to come as we sing. Now, you notice I have uh, some little stickers up here. These are butterfly stickers. We are not doing communion today because we don't have an ordained pastor to, to bless it. But I would like to invite you to come. Come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let him cover your shame. Let him fill you with joy. Let him transform you from the inside out. And then, as a little reminder of who we are, let's rise up on those wings of joy and bring that message of life to a world that needs it. Thank you very much.